Hello, we're Project 6 and we're a charity working with people in South and West Yorkshire. We deliver a range of services to support people with alcohol and other drug use to help individuals, families and communities to make meaningful and sustainable change in their well-being and you're listening to our podcast. So if you've arrived here without listening to part one of the conversation with Professor Julia Buxton, I recommend you go back and have a listen to that episode first. This is a bit of a follow-on from that conversation where Vicky and Julia are discussing some of the specific stigma experienced by women in connection to drug and alcohol services. In this part, they're building on that conversation and they're talking about what they feel might need to happen to bring about some of the changes we need to see. It's straight into the conversation and it's Vicky who speaks first. What are circumstances do you feel that have led us here? Because that is a, that's an eviscerating analysis of, of drug and alcohol treatment services and, and actually I there's very little of that I can disagree with. So how do you think we got here in the first place? What, what were the underlying drivers of that, do you think, Julia? Sorry to say this, but I think there are international reasons, Vicky, and I think there are also local reasons. So I think if just very quickly to talk about, and I will keep it quick just on the international, I think there was a very, very important change um, in 1988. Now, in, in case anybody listening to this doesn't fully understand the international framework of drug control, there are three conventions. Um, there's a whole number of drug conventions, but these are administered by the United Nations, and these essentially dictate national level drug policies because governments have signed up to these UN conventions and therefore have to implement them at home um, and this is criminalization and the thing about these three conventions 1961 single convention 1971 on psychotropics and then 1988 on illicit trafficking um, the thing about these conventions is that they emphasize the importance of you know most severe punishment for drug related crimes even though they do acknowledge that, you know, treatment has to be made available and, and people who are using drugs shouldn't be, you know, punished necessarily. The real emphasis in these international treaties is around punishment. And the 1988 treaty emphasising even that there should be punishment, draconian punishment, exemplary punishment, including for possession-related offences. Now, that international framework in the UK has kind of created an environment in which it's been possible to introduce really punitive drug laws in which the police have continued to have the lead role in drug policy implementation. So if you're of the view, as I am, that drug policy is something which is an area of health and education, then the tragedy of this approach in criminalisation is that the police remain in the lead. And this emphasis on policing has played very, very well to these conservative law and order agendas, which we've also seen in the Labour Party, but which have been particularly associated with the Conservative Party. Um, the emphasis on policing, marginalisation, this, this kind of notion of people who are users of drugs as being drivers of local disorder and insecurity, that this then bleeds into these kind of narratives around needing a harsh response, that we have to be tough on drugs, we have to be tough on crime, which in turn then justifies reducing the amount of money which is going into treatment, which is going into things like houses, education, training for jobs. So instead, we're kind of maintaining this focus on policing and prisons instead of reorienting, which we have to do, back to drugs as a health and development issue. 
So I think we've arrived at this point because we're in an international system which has sought to deal with the globalization of drugs through very draconian policing led measures. And this has, you know, kind of elided, it's merged with domestic agendas of intensifying policing, law and order based approaches, and increasing the role of prisons in our society, not as somewhere where people go for rehabilitation and for treatment, but for punishment. And it's this kind of change in our understanding of the role of prisons, I think, which has led us to the point where we are today, of ridiculous stories. Something I saw in the Telegraph in Argos um, over the last week, I've been following some of the court reports there, you know, of, of women going to prison for stealing chocolate biscuits from various shops and, you know, being arrested, carrying small wraps in their underwear, you know, women who are acknowledged to be homeless, traumatised, have been subject to abuse or domestic violence, and yet still in this terribly Keynesian and draconian way, blocking up the front pages of the Telegraph and Argus and its court reporting. So how do you think we can collectively come together and push for the voice of of women in policy to have a, a greater voice? Well, those are really, really interesting questions. I think in terms of strengthening women's voices in our own localities, I think it's about us really trying to understand the diversity of women's experience and the diversity of women. I mean, what we've done throughout our conversation here is we've kind of referred, haven't we, to this generic homogenous block, which we're calling women. Um, And the reality is that women have, you know, very, very different experiences. And we're seeing very, very different trends within the community of women who are users of drugs. We're seeing women using drugs for longer, um, sometimes engaging in really quite problematic patterns of polydrug and drug and alcohol use. We need to better understand the diversity of these experiences. And that also means listening to voices, you know, in different languages, from different communities. It's about us having a common understanding of what the the multiple uh, challenges are that we face. Um, in terms of trying to move move forward with this and, and better understand how we can build our unity, um, I think the real challenge in terms of getting women's voices heard in drug policy is that those we would normally look to in this country as potentially progressive listeners, audiences, so whether we're talking about One Nation conservatives or whether we're talking about, you know, the Labour Party and its attention to women's uh, women's issues. Right now, there is an absolute paucity of leadership on drug policy in this country. It's actually quite embarrassing how far behind the European and the international curve we are. I mean, you know, we had this absolutely ridiculous situation uh, very, very recently at the Conservative um, Party conference. Uh, where we had police and crime commissioners talking about reclassifying cannabis as a class A drug. I mean, this this kind of level of conversation compared to, you know, other countries around the world where they're having serious regulatory change, getting really good epidemiological survey work done, getting people trained, engaging uh, people who are drug users as stakeholders in policy development. This is what's happening in many, many other countries of the world. And the UK is really on a back foot here. It's, as I said, it's really quite embarrassing. And the government's drug strategy from, um, is it from harm to hope? Um, you know, if our focus and if Carol Black's emphasis, which, which is entirely correct, is that we really need to urgently be plowing in money. I think Carol Black recommends 500 million pounds um, into treatment services. And yet the whole focus of the way that the government has launched this new drug strategy has been around 
county lines, taking down the drug kingpins, another three hundred million pounds into um, county lines prevention, and it's still this kind of narrative of a law and order response, and it's still the resources going in there. So unless we actually have better voices around the table, a diversity of voices around the policy table, and we hold our elected representatives accountable for the decisions they take around drug policy and the funding of treatment services, then the challenge is going to be that we're simply going to remain locked out of these important policy discussions. So I think what we need to do is start at the local level, you know, just basically having better engagement, better discussion, training and education at the local level, but also at the international level where many of my colleagues are working, getting the UN ODC, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, to collate gender sensitive information on how many women are arrested, how many women are incarcerated. You know, we need this information. We need long term and better evaluations. and We need impact assessments. And yet drug policy is the most arcane, arcane policy area. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. Um, so sorry that this is quite a long winded response to your question. How do we all unify? Um, just to reiterate, our most basic problem is right here at home in the UK and the frankly quite juvenile and arcane nature of the political debate. And until the Labour Party and the Conservative Party can really get their heads around the damage that current strategy is causing, then we're going to be in, you know, this kind of dead end of policy for the next couple of years, which is quite a frightening outlook, considering the drug deaths that we have in this country. It's also worth mentioning, it's just those countries which have moved ahead with either full legalization, which means creating regulated drug markets. We don't have many examples of this, um, but Canada and Uruguay um, would probably be at the top of that list, although this is usually just limited to cannabis. Um, but these countries are now giving us, and Switzerland as well is another good example, Portugal, decriminalization. These countries are now going to be able to provide us with better data as to whether decriminalization and legalization is useful in reducing stigma and enabling more resources to be put into treatment services. So, so now we have these projects going, these initiatives going. I mean, we've got something like 30 countries worldwide which have introduced some form of decriminalization. Um, including drugs, you know, some Australian territories, I think, are introducing decriminalization of heroin, opiates, cocaine, MDMA. So, you know, we do have these models. So we can look at these countries and say, you know, collect the data over the years. Are they improving the situation of women? So so we are looking for rich data going forward. I wonder, I wonder how we can help. Is there a way we can, and I know Transform do some good, great work about this, is there some way we can help shift that debate to a more mature, responsible, evidence-based debate? You know what I think is really making a change, Vicky, is hearing from people who are impacted by these policies. Um, one of the things that we tried to do in Shifting the Needle was just to have a couple of chapters. It's, it's, it's free to download. I'm not trying to flog the book. Uh, to have a couple of chapters by by women who are users of drugs and talking about their experiences, uh, women who were users of drugs or women who were the mothers of people who were using drugs. And there's a lot of campaign groups. I mean, anyone's child is a really good example here. But I think hearing firsthand from people who are impacted and, and this, you know, it takes a lot of confidence for people to to put themselves forward, to talk about their stories. Um, to deal with the pain that sometimes discussing these issues can cause for people. 
but there are organizations such as the you know great colleagues at the Washington Office on Latin America, which has done a whole series of videos um, on women in the US and Latin America who are in prison on drug related charges. You know, whether it's photographic exhibitions, whether it's poetry readings, which, you know, I've heard from from uh, some of your colleagues at Project Six when previously we've done sessions in Leeds and, you know, poetry, stories, you know, write to the local newspapers, get other voices heard. Because, you know, we if we continue with this Dickensian representation of drug users, we're not able to change the narrative. And so hearing voices of people is really, for me, the fundamental first step forward. And it's that diversity of voice that you referred to. We're very good, or we have been very good at rolling out, you know, rolling out somebody that's done very well in their recovery and made lots of positive changes. And we put people on pedestals quite often, but we're, they're our ex-customers. We're not so good at hearing the difficult stories, the gritty stories, the people that are still um, really dealing with their dependency and everything that, and all the challenges that that throws at them as well. So it, for me, it's how do we get those people's voice and the voices of people that are so stigmatized they can't even bear to walk through our front door. And it's those people's voices that we need to get woven into our policies as well. Well, it's also about, you know, trying to become a more caring society, um, you know, and I think this is the heart of the challenge with stigma, isn't it? And you know, one of the words you mentioned at the, you know, right at the beginning, we were talking about populism and talking about austerity. And, you know, it's it's so easy to scapegoat an other in an economic climate um, like we have right now, you know, whether it's austerity or whether it's a moral climate. I mean, you know, I remember growing up in Manchester in the 1980s and the stigma around uh, HIV in the gay community, you know, this kind of the nature of the stigma changes, but it's always these kind of it's always the marginal, it's always the bridge populations, it's the migrants, it's the gays, it's, you know, all of these, the sex workers, these kind of communities to which social intolerance is really quite easy to leverage in difficult times. And what we, I think, probably need to think about doing is how we kind of gain control of these things like, you know, personal stories, video diaries, these kinds of things, and just getting a different narrative out there. And you know, what we really need is there was a very influential film in the 1960s, Kathy Come Home, you know, these kind of dramas and documentaries that detail the situation. You know, it's humanising these stories and reaching out, but we are desperately in need of a really, really good documentary piece at the moment on the state of drugs in Britain. It's about having communities and societies where we don't really rely on stigmatising and othering in order to try and rebuild some lost social glue. That's the tragedy in the UK right now. And that's part two of Vicky Beer's conversation with Professor Julia Buxton. Check out the description of this episode for links to the videos from the Washington Office of Latin America and the book Shifting the Needle. Remember, it is the Project 6 Ideas Conference coming up this year in June. So you can join us to share in conversation and workshops exploring how we can rebalance the drug and alcohol sector ecosystem just head to project6.org.uk forward slash conference for all the details and tickets and that's it i hope you've enjoyed the first two episodes of the project six podcast if you've liked what you've heard for this series we're planning to release a new episode every tuesday And we hope you can join us next time.